Forgiveness, that's a tricky one, isn't it? To forgive somebody when they've hurt us, when they've sinned against us. Sometimes they hurt us really deeply. Getting to that point of being able to forgive someone else, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy task. When we're on the other side of that, when, when we hurt someone, when we sin against someone and, and we're repentant of that, we feel sorry for what we've done, then we like forgiveness, right? We want that person to offer us forgiveness in return. But we do things to hurt people. We do things, whether it's big or small, we do things that we need to ask for people's forgiveness from time to time in our lives. And I can think of a time in my life when I actually needed to ask the forgiveness of a large group of people. And this was about five years ago. My wife, Heather, and I, we wanted to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. And so we decided to take a weekend trip. And we decided that we were going to go to Baltimore, Maryland, uh, for no reason other than we'd never been there. And we found really cheap plane tickets. So it sounded like a good idea. And so we decided to go to Baltimore. And so we were flying out of Columbus, Ohio airport to Baltimore. And while we were there in the airport, we were waiting to board the plane, and this is uh, not my proudest moment, and in a moment of weakness, I look across the room, and I see a guy standing there against the wall, and I think to myself, he's dressed kind of goofy. His beard is kind of weird. The way he does his hair is kind of goofy, so I'm I'm elbowing Heather, and I'm kind of poking fun at this guy a little bit. Again, not something that I'm proud of, but that's what I did. And so we go to board the plane. This guy gets on our plane, and, and, and we get on the, board, on the plane, and we get in our seats and all of that, and we take off. And we get to that point in the flight, which is everyone's favorite part, which is when they pass out snacks, right? It's everyone's favorite part of the flight, when you get your drink and you get your snacks, pretzels, whatever it is. And we get to that point in the flight, and all of a sudden, I just start to feel terrible. I mean, I feel really, really bad. I'm getting really super hot. I can't cool myself off. I'm turning up the air. I'm fanning myself. Nothing is working. I'm starting to feel really dizzy and lightheaded, and I'm starting to get nervous. Like the anxiety is raising a little bit too because I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do? All I want to do is lay down. I'm in this row with three people. I'm in the middle. Uh, Heather is on one side, and this lady that we don't know is on the other side of me, and I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do here? And so it keeps getting worse and worse. And I think, well, maybe if I lay my head down on the seat in front of me, if I just kind of rest my head on that, maybe that'll help a little bit. Maybe I'll feel a little bit better. And so I decide to do that. And so I lay my head down, and that's the last thing I remember. I completely pass out, lose consciousness. I am just, I'm out of it. And so it gets close to the time when we're going to be telling the flight attendants uh, what, what we want for, for our drinks. And Heather's trying to get my attention and, and asks me, what, what do you want to drink? And I'm not responding. And so then she notices that I'm kind of convulsing and shaking and not responding to her. So she pulls me back from the seat. My eyes are wide open. My pupils are completely dilated. And I'm completely unresponsive to what she's saying. And so at that point, she, she yells out at the flight attendant, hey, I need help. And the flight attendant is like, ma'am, there's a lot of people on this plane. You'll get your drink, okay? Just calm down. <laughs> but then my wife said, no, I, I think my husband is, is having a seizure. And so in that moment, mass chaos breaks out. Everyone starts freaking out. The lady that's sitting beside me, she disappears. We never saw her again. I have no idea where she went. And the flight attendant's freaking out, yelling for doctors and nurses and all those things. I have no idea what's going on. I'm just completely out of it. So when I come to, and what I heard is there's a couple minutes or a few minutes went by before, before I came to, and I open my eyes. The first thing I notice is that I have an oxygen mask on. 
The second thing I noticed is I can see Heather. They had laid me down in the row where we were sitting, and, and I could see her still sitting in her seat and the concerned look on her face. And I thought, well, this isn't good. Something bad just happened. And then I look straight up, and I see someone standing over me, helping me. Who do you think that was? It was the guy that I had made fun of earlier. He was a doctor. He was a really nice guy, and he was very helpful. So that's the first person that I thought, I, I need to ask for this person's forgiveness. Then we were flying on Southwest. If you've ever flown on Southwest, you know that you can pay a little extra money to get the front row to have a little extra leg room. You can get off the plane first then, all those things. Well, since all this happened, they decided I needed to get off the plane first. They were going to take me to the hospital, to the emergency room. The EMT guys need to be able to get on and get me. So they kicked those people out of their seats, the ones that had paid extra money. And so they didn't get to enjoy the extra leg room second group of people that I needed to ask their forgiveness. And finally, because it was such a short uh, flight from Columbus to Baltimore, and because of the scene that I had caused, no one on the flight got their snack. No one got their snack, no one got their drinks. I ruined everybody's day because I passed out on the plane. So this whole group of people I, I owed apologies to and needed to beg for their forgiveness. And so we went to the emergency room and spent a couple hours there. That's a whole other story for another time, uh, downtown Baltimore. Um, but everything was okay. They released me a couple hours later, and we enjoyed our weekend. Luckily, it wasn't a seizure like they thought it was. I had to go through all these tests, go to the neurologist. I couldn't drive for a couple months, which was terrible. And but it wasn't uh, it wasn't seizures. Apparently, there's something called convulsive syncope. When you pass out, you can shake, and it looks a little bit like a seizure, uh, but just not quite as violent. And so that's what I had. But thankfully, everything was all right. And now it's just a funny story. But we do things in our lives to hurt people, but also people do things in, uh, to us as well. They damage us. They damage our relationships. They damage us emotionally. Uh, mentally, physically. They do things that hurt us, and sometimes those things are really hard to overcome. So this morning, we're going to look at, at a story from the book of Genesis and a man named Joseph and what he had to go through to get to the point of forgiveness. And he went through a ton of things in his life. A lot of people hurt him on, on his way to forgiveness. And so we're going to look at his story. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, and Joseph's story is like 13 chapters long in Genesis, so I decided it would probably be a bad idea to go verse by verse because we'd be here for like three days, and I figured you guys are going to be ready for lunch, so we won't do that. So we're going to skip around a little bit, and so just try to stay with me as we, we skip around through the book of Genesis a little bit. Uh, also, if you're taking notes today, and even if you're not, I might encourage you to because as we go through the message time, I'm going to be asking you to, to write down a few different numbers. And that sounds kind of weird right now, um, but I promise it'll all come together at the end. So a few different times I'm going to ask you to write down a specific number, and then we'll talk about it at the end. But just to kind of set up uh, the story and what's going on in Joseph's life here, Joseph is 17 years old, and his father Jacob had 12 sons. And Jacob is the grandson of Abraham the guy that God had chosen to build a great nation out of him and his descendants. And so Abraham is, is Jacob's uh, grandfather. And then he's the son of Isaac. And Joseph had 10 older brothers and one younger brother. And so that's where we're at as we begin reading in Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4. It says, Now Israel, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was... 
because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And so Jacob favored Joseph because he had him in his old age. And so maybe some of you out there, you're the older sibling, and you can relate to this a little bit, that maybe there was younger siblings, the babies in the family, who were favored a little more than you were. I know there's some older siblings out there that probably can relate to that. But the robe that that Jacob gave to Joseph, it carried significant meaning. This wasn't just a nice gift. It carried a lot of meaning. Because this meant by by Jacob giving Joseph this robe that he was setting Joseph apart as the one who was going to lead the family after Jacob had died. And now in those days in their culture, that would have been a responsibility. That would have been an honor that was given to the oldest son. Joseph was not the oldest son. He was the second to youngest. And so Jacob, by doing this, what he had done is he had not only passed up his oldest son, he had passed up ten of Joseph's brothers to get to Joseph. And so you can understand why they would be a little bit upset. But the passage tells us that, that they couldn't even speak peacefully to him and that they actually hated Joseph. Now, I was an only child, so I didn't have any brothers or sisters. So maybe I don't understand the whole dynamic of having brothers and sisters in the house. Uh, my wife had two brothers, and so I, I saw how that works a little bit. But maybe since I grew up, grew up without brothers and sisters in the house, I don't totally get it. But i got to believe that even if you don't have the best relationship with your brothers and sisters, that it would be really hard to get to the point of saying that you hate them. But that's where Joseph is with his his brothers. It says that they hated him. So let's continue reading in verse 5. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And so now, as if feelings weren't already bad enough between Joseph and his brothers, Joseph has these two dreams. And in true 17-year-old teenage boy fashion, he decides he's going to tell his brothers. And he's like, hey, guys, check this out. This dream that I have, isn't this awesome? They're like, Joseph, no, that's, that's not awesome. And so the first dream uh, was about Joseph's brothers bowing down to him. The second dream was the same, but it also included his father and his mother. And so Jacob, his father, rebuked him publicly, but he didn't totally dismiss the dream like Joseph's brother did. He continued to ponder and wonder what its meaning could hold for their family. And so these dreams were actually laying out the path for Joseph's life. And I don't think either Joseph or his brothers could have completely understood what the meaning of these dreams were, but they were foreshadowing what was to come, and it really held the key to Joseph's entire life and to what was about to happen. So let's see what did happen. Let's continue reading verse 18. They, Joseph's brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. 
Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Now remember I told you I was going to have you write down a few numbers. So write down the number 17. That's the first number I want you to write down, 17. And so what was going on here? Joseph's brothers were out in the fields. They were working, working hard, uh, carrying out their responsibilities. Joseph was back at the house with his father, not working as hard as his brothers. Jacob decides that he wants to send Joseph out to check on his brothers to see how things are going. And, And really, this probably wasn't a good idea. Jacob probably should have realized the relational issues that were happening between his sons. But instead, he goes and he he sends Joseph out to check on them anyway. And so Joseph's brothers come up with with a plan to get rid of him. Literally, they wanted to kill him. That's how much they hated him. But thankfully, uh, Reuben, who was the oldest brother, steps in and redirects the brothers. And I think it's interesting that Reuben is the one to step in. As the oldest brother, we already talked about, he had the most to lose. He was the one that should have been the one that was going to, to take over the family, to have the honor of leading the family after Jacob was gone. So he had the most to lose in this, but he was the one that stood up for Joseph. And so Reuben convinces the rest of Joseph's, Joseph's brothers to, to throw him in a pit and to leave him there. And then Reuben's plan was that he was going to come back and get Joseph and rescue him. That was his plan, but that's not what happened. So as the brothers were, were eating, they, they looked ahead at the road, and they saw a group of Ishmaelites coming down the road. One of Joseph's brothers, Judah, uh, has the idea that they're going to sell Joseph. They're going to sell him into slavery. And now the thing that we have to keep in mind is, is that this is, this is Judah. And so these, again, are the great-grandsons of Abraham. They're sharing in the covenant to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. These are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you remember, Judah is the one that the kings of Israel eventually come from. David, Solomon, all of those guys, and eventually Jesus himself. And so this is the first time that that Judah kind of pops on the scene. This is the start of his story, and he's not off to a very good start. But Joseph is ripped of his robe, and his brothers sell him for 20 shekels of silver. 20 shekels of silver is about 11 grams of silver, and that was the average price for a slave in those days. So his brothers sell him. He's gone. Then they killed a goat. They took Joseph's robe and dipped the blood in it, took it to their father and said, Is this your son's robe? And he says, Yes. And they tell him that he's been killed by a wild animal. So not only do they sell Joseph into slavery, They also lie to their father, and they let their father believe that Joseph is dead, and they allow him to mourn the death of their son. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of bad feelings here to get to that point to allow those things to happen. So Joseph is sold into slavery, and he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar, who was an Egyptian official, and he had a large household. So let's continue reading. Turn a couple pages over to Genesis 39. We're going to read verses 2 through 5. Genesis 39, 2 through 5. 
says the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and intended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, and house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. And so Potiphar sees that, that God is with Joseph, and he puts Joseph in charge of his entire household. Verse 5 tells us that from the moment he makes the decision to do that, um, that the Lord blesses his house. So not only does he have a good worker and a good leader in Joseph, but he has a man whose the hand of God is on his life. Now, Potiphar, as an Egyptian, he wouldn't have even believed in God as the one true God, but he was reaping the benefits of having Joseph in his household. And so things are going well. Things have taken a turn. It looks like even though Joseph was sold into slavery, he's putting his life back together. But there's still more trouble to come. And a little bit later, Potiphar's wife begins to notice that uh, notice Joseph, and she tries to start an inappropriate physical relationship with him. Because the Bible tells us that Joseph was, was well-built and that he was handsome. And it tells us that she spoke to Joseph like this day after day. So this is daily temptation that is coming Joseph's way. And this isn't good because the thing we have to remember is that Joseph is still a slave. Yes, he's, he's risen in the ranks in Potiphar's house, but he's still a slave. And if he messes up, if he behaves poorly, he's certainly still going to be treated as a slave. So let's see Joseph's response in verse 9. Verse 9 and 10. Joseph here is talking about Potiphar. He says, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. So Joseph doesn't give in to the temptation. He says, No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give in to this temptation. And this makes Potiphar's wife really mad. And so she goes, she goes on to set Joseph up and to make it look like he was the one who was trying to start this relationship with her. And so because of that, Potiphar finds out and he ends up throwing Joseph in jail. He's in prison. So he's sold into slavery. He rises in Potiphar's house and he's thrown into prison. So his life is starting to look a little bit like a roller coaster ride. He was the favorite son of his father. Life was good at his father's house. Things were going well for him, but his brothers hated him, so he was sold into slavery. At that point, he rises in Potiphar's house to be in charge of the whole house. But then he ends up in prison for doing the right thing and for turning down Potiphar's wife's advances. And I think when we look at Joseph's life and sometimes our our own lives as well, we wonder, where is God in the midst of such disappointment? Where is God in the midst of these things that we go through in our lives? How can we say that he's present in our lives when we're going through this stuff like Joseph was going through? Well, chapter 39 tells us in verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. So yes, Joseph was sold into slavery, but God was still with him. The Lord was still with him, watching out for him. 
And then later in the chapter, in verse 22, now that Joseph is in prison, it says, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So where is God in the midst of our disappointment? He's right there with us. We may not see him. It may not feel like he's there, but he's working in the bigger picture. And that's exactly what he was doing in Joseph's life. He was there working in the bigger picture. He still had control. He still had plans for Joseph's life. So now Joseph is in prison. And while he's in there, he he rises to be in charge of the entire prison. And while he's in there, Pharaoh sends a, a couple uh, of, of his, uh, his right hand men, if you will. His, his chief cupbearer, which would have been his wine taster, as well as his chief baker. He got mad at them and sends them to prison too. And while they're in prison with Joseph, they each have a dream. And they tell their dreams to Joseph. And Joseph ends up interpreting their dreams. And here's what he tells them. To the chief cupbearer, he says, In three days, Pharaoh's going to bring you out of prison. He's going to lift you up. And he's going to restore you to your position of of chief cupbearer. For the baker, he says, The same thing is going to happen. In three days, Pharaoh's going to pull you up out of prison. But unfortunately, you're not going to be restored to your position. You're going to be hanged by Pharaoh. And you're going to die. And so in three days, that's exactly what happens. And all that Joseph says comes true. And so the cupbearer is is out of prison. He's back uh, serving Pharaoh. And for two more years, Joseph is in prison. And after two years, Pharaoh has a dream that he doesn't understand, and he can't figure out the meaning to. And the Egyptians in those days, they would have uh, considered their dreams to carry a lot of weight and, and that the meaning of them were very important. And they had magicians and wise men who would attempt to, uh, to interpret these dreams and, and tell Pharaoh what his dreams meant. But with this particular dream, they weren't able to do that. And so Pharaoh's cupbearer remembers that two years ago, while he was in prison, that he told this Hebrew man named Joseph his dream, and he interpreted it, and everything that Joseph said came true. And so Pharaoh was very interested in that. And so he calls for Joseph. He brings Joseph out of prison. He tells him the dream that he has. And then here was Joseph's response. Turn to Genesis chapter 41. We're going to read verses 29 through 31. Verse 29 says, There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of great plenty throughout Egypt, and it's going to be followed by seven years of a devastating famine. So this was obviously extremely concerning for Pharaoh. And Joseph goes on to explain how Egypt needs to, in the seven years of abundance, they need to store up the food to get ready for this famine, to be able to make it through the seven years of famine. And not only that, Pharaoh needs to to choose a wise man to be in charge of this project of storing up the food. And so Pharaoh decides that there's no one as wise in Egypt who also has the hand of God on his life like Joseph did. And so he decides to put Joseph in charge of collecting all the food in Egypt to prepare for this terrible famine that was on its way. And so let's take a look at how that worked out for Joseph in verse 39. 
So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Now here's the second number that I want you to write down. Write down the number 30. So you should have number 17 and the number 30. So here goes Joseph on his roller coaster ride of a life again. Now he's the second most powerful man in Egypt, which basically made him the second most powerful man in the world at this point. And the items that Pharaoh gives Joseph, they carried great significance. The signet ring uh, meant that Joseph now had royal authority. This would have been the stamp that was used to issue a, a royal decree in those days. The only person that outranked Joseph was Pharaoh himself. And the fine linen garments would again be setting Joseph apart as part of the ruling class. So he was no longer a slave. He was royalty now. And so Joseph went out and did exactly uh, what he told Pharaoh needed to be done. And the passage goes on to, to tell us that the land produced in great abundance and Joseph gathered up all the food for those seven years. It says he gathered so much food that it was like the sand of the sea. And the passage tells us that it got to a point that there was so much food that Joseph just stopped counting it. He stopped counting it because they had so much plenty. And then exactly as Joseph had said, the seven years of abundance were over and the seven years of famine began. And this famine didn't just hit Egypt. Genesis 41 tells us that it hit all lands. It was over the entire earth. And after the famine hit, the people of Egypt, they were hungry. They didn't have any food, so they went to Pharaoh for help. And Pharaoh said, go to Joseph and ask him and do exactly what he says to do. And so Joseph opened the storehouses and he sold food to the Egyptians as well as as people from other lands as well because of how bad the famine was. And so this worked out pretty good for Pharaoh. Because not only did he have food to get through the famine, not only was he able to provide for the people in Egypt, but he is making money as well. Joseph is selling food to the Egyptians as well as people from other nations as well. So this works out pretty good for Pharaoh. But we've been focusing on Joseph for a little while now, and I think we need to get back and take a look at what's going on with Jacob and Joseph's brothers and see what's going on in their lives because they're being affected by this famine as well. And so Jacob hears that, that there is grain in Egypt, and he decides to send his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And he sends all but his youngest son, Benjamin, because Benjamin was the youngest, and he was afraid that something would happen to him. So again, Jacob is showing favoritism to the youngest son. But Joseph's brothers make the journey to Egypt to buy grain, and of course the person that they have to go to to purchase this grain is none other than their brother Joseph. Now they didn't recognize him because it had been such a long time since they had seen him, and he would, he would have looked like an Egyptian at that point. He would have been dressed like an Egyptian rather than a Hebrew man, so they didn't recognize him. Um, but in Genesis 42, it says that when they got to Joseph, they didn't recognize him, and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? At that point, Joseph recognized his brothers, but he also remembered the dreams that he had about them so many years ago that showed that this exact moment was going to happen. But Joseph doesn't reveal himself to his brothers right away. He decides to, to have a little fun and to give them a little bit of a hard time, and he treats them, them roughly, and he treats them like strangers, even accuses them of being spies. 
And his brothers tell him, no, we're, we're not spies. We come from our father's household. Uh, we had 12 brothers. One of them is back home with our father. One of them is no more, talking about Joseph. And we've just come to get grain so that we can have food for our families. But Joseph continues to accuse them of, of being a spy. And so Joseph says, well, if you're not spies, then prove it. Prove it. Leave one of your brothers here. Go back uh, to your home. Get your youngest brother and bring him here to me. And so that's what happens. So Joseph keeps his, his brother Simeon in custody in Egypt, and he sends his brothers back to their father Jacob uh, to, to get the youngest brother. And so Jacob doesn't like this plan. He doesn't like the idea of sending Benjamin to, to Egypt because he's already lost Joseph. Now one of his sons, Simeon, is in custody in Egypt. Who knows if he's ever going to see him again. And so he, he has no desire to send Benjamin uh, with, with his sons back to Egypt. But eventually he realizes that they're desperate and that they need food. And it's the only option they have. So he sends his sons back to Egypt. And, and when they get there, uh, they, they get to the point where, where Joseph sees them. And he sees his younger brother, Benjamin. He throws this, this big dinner for them. And they all eat together. Um, but Joseph still isn't ready to reveal himself. He's still not ready to let them know that he's their brother. And so he messes with them a little bit more. And then finally, finally it gets to the point where he just can't contain it anymore. And he just has to let them know who he is. So turn to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The third number I want you to write down is number 39. 39. So Joseph goes on to tell his brothers that it wasn't them that sent him there as a slave, but it was God working in their lives in order to save their family and to be able to provide for them during this great family. Because remember, these are Abraham's great-grandsons. Again, they shared in the covenant that God made with Abraham to build a great nation out of his descendants. And so God was at work in the bigger picture while Joseph, and especially his brothers, were caught up in the smaller picture of their immediate lives. They couldn't see past their own pride. They couldn't see past their own jealousy and anger to see that it was God who had a plan for Joseph from the beginning, not just being the favorite of their father. And we do that so often in our lives, don't we? We miss what God is doing in the bigger picture because we can't see past our own pride or fears or doubts and insecurities. And I get it, it's difficult. It is really difficult when people have hurt us to see that God is still moving and active in our lives, to be able to see that God is at work in the bigger picture and he still has a plan because of the hurt that we feel because of what people have done to us. But Joseph is reunited with his brothers and he wants to see his father, of course, as well. So he sends his brothers back to get Jacob and all of their families to come to be close to, to Joseph so that he could take care of them. And that's what happens, and that's what they do. And the Bible tells us that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years before he died. I bet he cherished that time, the fact that he had 17 years with his son, who he thought was dead a long time ago. 
I'm sure he cherished that time. But once Jacob died, his, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, were, were nervous that, that Joseph still may want to get revenge on them because of what happened. And now that uh, Jacob was out of the way, now that their father was out of the way, maybe now would be the time that Joseph would try to get his revenge. But here's what Joseph has to say in response to that. Chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's read verse 21 too. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So what just happened here? It was forgiveness. True forgiveness happened in this circumstance. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers. He was able to forget about the terrible thing that he had done to them, the terrible thing that others had done to him, and he was able to continue caring for and taking care of his brothers' families. And so let's take a look at these numbers that I had you write down. Let's go back to those for a minute. The first one I had you write down was the number 17. We kind of already know what this one means because we talked about it at the beginning of the message. 17 is the age that Joseph was when we started his story and when he was sold into slavery. He was 17 years old. The next number, 30. 30 was how old Joseph was when he rose to power in Egypt, when he became second in command in Egypt. So for 13 years, he was at Potiphar's house and in prison. We don't know exactly how the, the times break down. We know he was in prison for at least two years, but for 13 years... I think sometimes when we read scripture, we, we read a few pages and it takes us five or ten minutes and, and we think that's how quickly things happen. But this was a long time that Joseph had to struggle and fight and deal with the hurt that his brothers had caused him. The third number I had you write down was 39. 39 was the age that Joseph was when his brothers came to, to ask for food and when their relationship was finally put back together and they were reconciled as a family. So from 17 years old to 39 years old, for 22 years, 22 years Joseph dealt with this hurt and this pain that his brothers had caused him. I mean, can you imagine what he must have been thinking? Why do they hate me so much? What in the world did I ever do to them to make them hate me so much? But the awesome part of the story is, although it was a a lot of time, and some good things happened in Joseph's life, everything he did uh, turned to gold. He, he rose in Potiphar's house. He, he rose in the prison. He rose in Egypt. So some good things happened. And, and while he was in Egypt, while he was a second command, he had everything he could ever want. There's nothing more that he could want for. But yet his life and his story wasn't completely redeemed yet. It wasn't until he was able to get to that moment of forgiveness. That moment of telling his brothers that, I forgive you. And this was God working the whole time. This wasn't you hurting me. This was God with a plan. And so the story goes on to tell us that that Joseph lived another 71 years. He lived to be 110 years old. And I'm guessing by the time he was 80, 90, 100 years old, those 22 years seemed a long time in the past. And so what I want to say to you today is, I know that for some of you out there, people have hurt you. And they've hurt you pretty badly. They've hurt you emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. For some, it's happened recently. For some, you've been dealing with it for a long time. But never give up on God redeeming your story. Because he did it for Joseph. It took 22 years, but he did it. And the thing that got him there was forgiveness. 
Because the thing about forgiveness is that it's not just for the person that sinned against us. It's not just for the person that hurt us. It is for them, but it's for us as well. Because until we're able to let go of that hurt, until we're able to let go of those things that that people did to us and truly forgive someone and let that hurt and pain go, God can't come in and totally restore our lives. And so I know it's a lot to ask, and I know it hurts, but we have to get to that place of forgiveness. Because that's what Jesus commanded. In Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? And Jesus says, seven times, 70 times. Is he given an exact number? No, he wasn't given an exact number. He was saying forgiveness is unlimited. That when someone is in need of your forgiveness, you forgive them. That's what you do. And Jesus set that example for us. Think about how many times we mess up, how many times we fail, how many times we give in to the same sin over and over and over again. But every single time, Jesus forgives us. He set the example for us, and that's how we're supposed to be for other people and forgiving and loving others. And so this morning, as we close out our time, we're going to close with a song as we're taking up our offering as well. Um, But we're going to hear the story of a young lady in our church, Aria, who leads us in worship so beautifully uh, a couple times a month. And she has a beautiful voice, but she also has a beautiful story of forgiveness. And we want to share this with you as we close, close out our service this morning. Let's pray together.